Good morning. I'm Nathan Boyette. I'm one of your pastors here, and it's my pleasure to be here this morning and preach to you. We're going to be finishing out the Sermon on the Mount this morning, Matthew 7, 24 to 29. While you flip there, just like to make an announcement of appreciation. We're coming to the close of kind of the, the school year, the, the Sermon on the Mount series, and so some things are wrapping up. We have the last Sunday of Equip Groups today. We have a transition from our school year schedule to a summer schedule, and we have a lot of people who have been working behind the scenes, sometimes working in front of the scene to make these things happen. We have Equip Group leaders. We have Renew Group leaders. We have nursery volunteers and workers. We have EP kids crew teachers, and we are so thankful for all of them. These individuals lovingly serve our congregation, our people, our children, and we are so thankful for them. Let's give a round of applause for them and just thank them. I know there are some teacher appreciation gifts for Equip and Renew Group leaders in the lobby, and so go and get one if you are one of those individuals. And then if you work in the EP Kids Crew Ministry or the Nursery, Bridget will be seeking you out with a gift. We are so thankful for you. I mentioned that we will be transitioning to a summer schedule and a different summer event, so please pick up one of these flyers in the lobby, which shares a little bit about how things during the summer are going to be different. And there's some exciting opportunities to connect more as a church body, so please do grab it and check it out. Well, this is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. It has been a blessing for me to be able to study this together with you all as one of your pastors. I love the Sermon on the Mount even more now after the past five months of studying it together. It is the greatest sermon, no surprise, being preached by our Lord and Savior. He was the best preacher. And it has been challenging to me, and I hope challenging to you. One of my earliest memories is actually about this passage. When I was a young boy of four or five, I went with my parents to church, River Road United Methodist Church in Richmond, Virginia, and they had a church library. And I went there because I loved getting the books. And I got a book on the two foundations, the man who built his house on sand and the man who built his house on solid rock. And I still remember taking that book home and looking at it again and again. I couldn't read, so I didn't read it, but I just looked at it because the pictures were so interesting. And this is such an important close to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wants to drive home for his audience and for us the need and importance of not only listening to his words, but responding to them. We are not just to be listeners, hearers. We are to respond to what Jesus has to say. Let's read together. Matthew 7, 24 to 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority 
and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to challenge us, to encourage us, to comfort us. Lord, we pray that you would speak now through your word. Be present in this message, Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts what we need to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I still remember hearing a sermon preached on this passage a while ago, and I loved how the pastor introduced this topic. He spoke about the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, a great movie. If you're not familiar with it, Indiana is searching for the Holy Grail, the cup that Christ drank from at the Last Supper. And in that movie, he's fighting against the Germans, the Nazis, as he does in a lot of the movies, and the Nazis and him are rushing to get to the church in the desert that has this holy grail hidden away. They come to the inner sanctum of this church that's in a canyon, and the Nazis and Indiana come at the same time. The Nazi leader Donovan and his men shoot Indiana's father. He begins to bleed, and so they all rush to get to the grail because the grail, if you drink from it, can bring healing and lasting life. They come to the inner sanctum, and they meet an ancient knight who has been guarding the grail for his whole life, thousands of years. (laughs) Upon the table in the inner sanctum are all sorts of cups, tons of them just on this table, tons of cups. The knight says, you must choose which cup to drink from. Donovan, who has Indiana and his friends at gunpoint, gets to choose first. He asks the holy grail expert, a historian who's been studying this, Elsa to choose which of the cups belong to Jesus. Elsa looks over the table, chooses the most beautiful gold cup encrusted in gems. And Donovan takes the cup and says, ah, yes, this cup is surely the cup of the king of kings. And they put water in it and he drinks it and he dies because it wasn't the cup. It wasn't the cup. The knight says he chose poorly. (laughs) Understatement of the movie. Indiana, because the Nazis are in disarray, Indiana quickly looks among the cups, finding a simple clay cup. He pours some water in it, and he says, this is the cup of a carpenter, and drinks from it, and he lives, and he rushes to go give the water to his father, and sorry to ruin the movie, his father is healed. The knight says, you have chosen wisely. And just like Indiana, just like Donovan had a choice, we, each one of us, have a choice. And on the table, there are many cups, but only one cup which will provide life. There are many cups which, if we drink from, will provide death. In our passage today, Jesus presents a short parable about those who hear the words of his sermon. Two types of people with two types of responses to his word, two types of builders, and two types of foundations. This parable is used to close out the Sermon on the Mount and to remind his audience and us just how serious his word and the sermon have been. The parable as a conclusion is to bring us to a point of decision about his words and the choice that we all have. The two individuals have the same situation. They both hear Jesus's words. The two individuals both build a house and they both experience a storm resulting in a flood. The house is their life, their identity, their worth. The foundation is that which is of central importance to them, what they base their life upon, what they place their hope and their trust in. 
The storm is struggles, challenges that we all face in this sinful world. It could be the loss of a job. It could be the death of a loved one, political discord, career challenges, bad grades at school, not getting into that college that you long to attend. It could be relational strife with a friend, a spouse, a parent, a child. Storms come in so many forms, but they shake our house. They challenge us. In Jesus' story, the only difference between the two individuals is the foundation and whether they respond in obedience to Jesus' words. That's the only difference between the two individuals. And so this passage is about choice. As much of chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount has been about choice or options. Earlier in Matthew 7, Jesus said that there are two gates and two roads before us. A narrow gate that leads to life and a wide gate and a wide road that leads to death and destruction. The whole biblical witness is about choice. There's so many passages I could point to. But in Deuteronomy, Moses speaking to the people of Israel right before they enter the promised land says to them, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn away from them to worship other gods that you do not know. Humanity has sinfully rebelled against God. Each one of us have rejected him, have not loved him as we should, have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We've made that choice already to reject him. The result of that rejection is spiritual death, physical, spirit as well. But God in his mercy and grace has given each one of us another choice, another option to choose salvation in Jesus Christ, or to reject him. So the idea that we're going to unpack is that Jesus is the only sure and steady rock. So let us cling to him for salvation and life. Jesus is the only sure and steady rock. So let us cling to him for salvation and life. And there are only two options, two choices in our passage, to build your life on shifting sands, to build your life on the steady rock. Let's look at the first. Let's look at the negative first, the shifting sands. In verses 26 to 27, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus explains that the second individual in the parable is the one who hears his word his words, but does not do them. This individual hears all that Jesus has to say and ignores the implications. He's listened to the whole Sermon on the Mount and it's gone in one ear and out the other. All that Jesus has said in his life and ministry as well, but especially in the Sermon on the Mount, calls us to obedient response. It calls us to confession and repentance. If you've been here at all during this preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know how you could not have heard what Jesus has said and not been aware of how deep our sin really is and how deep our need for a savior really is. Not only is it disobedient to ignore Jesus's words, he says, but it's foolish. And he compares this foolishness to someone who builds a house on sand instead of a solid foundation. The house built on sand will crumble and fall when a storm comes. I'm no carpenter, but most likely it will crumble and fall even without a storm. 
because sand cannot hold the weight of a house for very long. In this illustration, Jesus is explaining that building your life on anything other than the very words of God himself is foolishness because all other worldviews, all other beliefs that we could build our lives upon will crumble at the first of life's challenges or at the very last of life's challenges, death. The rest of the Bible witnesses to Jesus' teaching about foolishness of building your life on anything other than God's words, especially in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is God's wisdom for life in a broken, sinful world. And Proverbs often contrasts wisdom and foolishness. Individuals and their beliefs are called fools or foolish over 40 times in this book. For example, in Proverbs 12, he says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Or in Proverbs 26, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And there is a way that seems right to a man, but in its end is the way of death. In Proverbs 3, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. There are so many examples in the Bible about the foolishness of trusting in ourselves or in other humans over God. So we primarily see that any other source of belief or guidance for life other than Jesus, other than God's word, is foolishness. But there's more going on here. Jesus is not just talking about wisdom for life, a self-help guide. He's talking about salvation itself. Humanity, as we've already talked about, has a sin problem that will result in death. That's guaranteed. He's talking about our need to be saved. If we ignore Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, we also ignore the only solution for sin and death. Any other attempt at salvation is foolish and like shifting sands that will crumble in the face of life's trials and challenges and our need to pay the penalty for our own sins. We titled this sermon series, The Heart of the Matter, because Jesus wants to expose and prod our hearts. Jesus, through the Sermon on the Mount, has been pointing to our hearts that they are desperately sinful and in need of salvation. We cannot save ourselves, is what he's been saying again and again. And so the Sermon on the Mount should have made us realize just how horrible and deep our sin really is. For example, we've seen how Jesus showed that it's not just that we are angry, but it's as if we are murderers with our very thoughts and words. It's not just that we're lustful, but that we have committed adultery in our hearts. There's so many examples in the Sermon on the Mount of how deep our sin is, deeper than we imagine. And so C.S. Lewis compared listening to the Sermon on the Mount to being knocked flat on your face with a sledgehammer. He said that he can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read or listen to the Sermon on the Mount and walk away with tranquil pleasure. The Sermon on the Mount has been a sledgehammer to wake us up from our spiritual complacency, to make us realize that we need salvation. And that is why Jesus says that the one who hears the words of the sermon he just preached and then does nothing about it is like a fool who builds his house on shifting, crumbling sands. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul also talks about this. In 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about foundations, saying, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other places, he calls the Corinthians and the Galatians fools for abandoning Jesus 
as a foundation and only hope for salvation. In Acts 4, Peter preaching to the crowds, so there's, there's salvation in no one else but Jesus, for there's no other name in heaven given among men by which we can be saved. And so we see that Jesus, in this concluding parable, gives us a warning about the foolishness of ignoring both his words of wisdom and his words of salvation, which he has given to us. His words of wisdom are the very words of God and are profitable for our lives. But his words of wisdom also point out the reality of our spiritual condition that is desperate and we need salvation. When my son Daniel was in kindergarten, he did a performance called The Three Little Pigs. It was a musical performance of this folk story. And in it, he was a straw salesman selling straw to one of the pigs. And in The Three Little Pigs, the pigs have a choice to make, right? They have a choice of what to build their house out of. And two of the pigs foolishly choose to build their house out of straw and six. And one of the pigs wisely chooses to build their house out of brick. Now think with me here, why would the pigs have chosen those foolish choices? Lazy, yeah. (laughs) Did you look at my servant notes? (laughs) He chose it out of convenience, maybe. Comfort, laziness. Maybe he chose it because he weighed the pros and the cons, the benefit and the effort. We do that in our life, don't we? We see how hard something might be, and we're like, well, what's the rate of return? What am I going to get out of that? All this hard work of self-examination, of dying to myself, of trusting in Jesus, is it really worth it? We think, and we foolishly often make choices like the two little pigs to build our house on shifting sands. Too often we make momentous decisions based on comfort, convenience, or what we're going to get out of it in the immediate rather than the eternal. We seek to build our life on so many foundations other than Jesus. Many Americans believe and practice a type of loose Christian expression which sociologists call moralistic therapeutic deism. Now that's a big term, but what does it mean? We believe in a distant God that's out there somewhere that created us and is benevolent and loves us. That's the deism part. We believe that we are basically good. That's the moralistic part. And we believe that the best ultimate goal is to be happy, therapeutic, moralistic, therapeutic deism. We believe in a distant God that's happy with us because we're basically good. That's what many Americans think about Christianity. But that couldn't be more wrong. We don't have a distant God. We are not basically good. And he's not concerned with our temporary happiness He's concerned with life everlasting, eternal joy. And so we can have big, impressive houses, our lives, but if the foundation is not secure, they will fail, they will fall. Our lives, our careers, our bank accounts, our family can look impressive, but if the foundation is shifting sand, then when the storms of life come along, When sin and difficulty assail us, our lives, our identity, our worth will be called into question. We will struggle to find answers. We will despair and give up hope. And sometimes we who claim to be Christians, we fake having Christ as our foundation. 
We fake relying on him, but the storms of life will expose where we have truly placed our trust. The storms of life will show how strong our foundation is or whether it is on shifting sands. Some of you here this morning might not have believed in Jesus in the way I'm speaking about. Maybe you have never adequately understood the message of the gospel, the message of God's love and salvation for each of you. Listen to me for a moment as I try to explain it. You see, God created us, every single human being. He created us to be known by him and be loved by him. That was God's purpose and plan all along. But humanity sinfully rebelled against him. Each one of us has rejected him, spat in his face. Each one of us have failed to love him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Each one of us have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And the result of that is death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That is what we earn for having rejected God and not loving him and not loving our neighbor. But that's not the end of the story. See, God the Father and Jesus the Son saw this horrible situation, saw the beautiful creation that God had created, and they didn't want that to happen. They didn't want death to destroy everything. So Jesus came to die in our place. He took our wages on his back. In our place, he died and was raised to new life so that we might have his perfect record. And that's why the verse, Romans 6.23, that says, for the wages of sin is death, goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That free gift is not something you earn, but it's something given to you, and you receive it by trust and faith. If you're here this morning and you haven't believed in Jesus, I encourage you, don't trust in the shifting sands anymore. Trust in Jesus, please. In a manner, all of us are investing our lives in something. Maybe the here and now, maybe our later lives, maybe our children's lives, or eternity. Only the gospel salvation Jesus provides can provide a good return in an eternal perspective. Dan Dorani, commenting on this passage, says, any creed or philosophy seems to work when life is easy. But when the storms of life beat upon us, those who build on Christ remain strong. A secular person may say, I have faced many storms on my own and stayed strong. But what about the final storm when life ends? At the end of life, when we each die, which we will, only Jesus will prove a steady sure foundation. So let's look at him in the final point, the steady rock. This is the positive response to Jesus's words. In verses 22 to 25, Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Jesus explains that the first individual in that parable is one who hears his word and responds in obedience. The individual hears all that Jesus has said and obeys. All that Jesus has said is, again, his life and ministry, but especially these words of the Sermon on the Mount. And it all calls for us to respond. Nothing Jesus ever said was just a nice little platitude that you tucked away for another day. It all called for response, and it calls us to respond Jesus says that the one who hears his words and responds is wise. He compares this wise response to his words to someone who builds his house on a strong, steady rock. 
The house built on a rock, strong foundation will not crumble because it will withstand any storms of life. In this illustration, Jesus explaining that building your life on his word and obedience to them is wise because only God's words are sure and steady. He is the creator, the maker of all things. Of course he knows what is good and right. Just like Proverbs spoke against the foolish, it also commends those who are wise and trust in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Knowing God is where wisdom is found. Proverbs 24, by wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. 2 Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God is the one who has wisdom for life. But as mentioned, it's not just wisdom for life that Jesus is speaking about here. It's the very salvation that we desperately need. And that's why in verse 22, Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Not a rock, the rock. The Bible repeatedly refers to God as the rock of Israel, the Savior and the one in whom they can collectively and individually take refuge. The words of our call to worship spoke about that. God is our rock. Jesus takes on the role, that role of being a rock for all who trust in him. He is the rock, the Savior, the refuge. But more than that, within the Gospel of Matthew, there's a further explanation. A, couple of, a number of chapters later, in Matthew 16, Jesus is speaking with his disciples. He's explaining to them about his role and his responsibility. And he says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is the rock here? It's the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior from sin, the one and only refuge for all of mankind. The confession of belief in him as God and Savior is the rock on which he will build his church. He is essentially the rock. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul writing to them, he says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. It's only in Jesus that we are saved. He is the only rock. The conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls his listeners and us to confess and believe not merely his words, but in him, that he is the rock, the savior, the refuge of all mankind. In him alone, we can find salvation, meaning for life, an answer to all our deepest longings. It's only in Jesus that we can find those things. Think with me about one biblical individual, David. David had an incredible life, didn't he? David, from a shepherd boy, became the right-hand man of the king, but his life crashed down in a matter of moments when Saul became jealous of him. David went through a storm. He was greatly betrayed. He became homeless. His wife abandoned him and married another. His wife, Saul's daughter, abandoned him and married another. He was pursued relentlessly. 
by the king whom he admired. He was betrayed. He was homeless. He had to act like a crazy individual in front of the Philistines, his previous enemies, in order to find refuge. David could have felt abandoned. David could have felt despair. And he most likely did at times. But Psalm 18 records how he felt safe and secure in the Lord. It's written when the Lord delivered him from the hand of Saul, and he says in verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies." Hopefully none of us go through the trials and difficulties that David went through, but we will all face challenges where we feel despair, where we feel like crying, where are you, God? But let each one of us, like David, trust in him, the one and sure rock. In our force. In our first point, we saw how all other foundations are shifting sand, but we've now seen that Jesus alone is the rock, the Savior, and the only refuge. But do our actions show that we have made him our foundation? Do our lives show that we have trusted in him as the rock? When the storms of life come, we are exposed. We are shown, we, we, we show the world and we show ourselves where our hopes really are, if they're really and truly the foundation on Jesus. Jesus says, everyone who hears my words and does them, are we obediently following Jesus, our Savior? Earlier in Matthew 7, Jesus spoke about a tree and its fruit. Are we bearing fruit? Are we showing the world and ourselves that we have placed Jesus as our rock-hard foundation? When the storms of life come, Christians cannot be shaken because their hope is the steady rock Jesus. Their hope is an eternal hope that is beyond this life. And so the circumstances of this life cannot affect them because their hope is beyond this world. I'd also encourage each one of you, don't waste a storm. When the storms of life come, it's an opportunity to see where your foundation is where you've truly placed your hopes in. When a storm comes, when your life, the house is crumbling, examine your foundation. Cling more tightly to Jesus, your Savior. And that's why we, it is so important that we as Christians engage in something called counter-catechesis. That's where we counter-teach what the world teaches us. Each one of us, from the day that we were little kids, have been learning and absorbing what our world teaches us about where to place our hopes where to build our lives, and often we absorb more from the world than we do from God's word. So we need to engage in counterchesis. That's what the entire Sermon on the Mount is. It's counterchesis. It's Jesus teaching against the contemporary teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. That's why the people in the Sermon on the Mount at the very end were amazed at his teaching because he had authority and he didn't teach like the scribes of the day. So let us each, when things are not difficult, when life is okay, let us study, let us reflect on God's word through personal devotions, through prayer, through listening to good preaching, through reading good books that examine non-Christian worldviews. We need to have these things in our life to teach us so that we are prepared for when the storms come. One of Jesus' intentions in the Sermon on the Mount was to call forth followers 
to be citizens of his kingdom. Citizens who had experienced gospel salvation, who had truly believed in Jesus and made him the foundation of their lives. Those citizens are called to be participants in the kingdom and the mission of the kingdom, not just consumers. We sadly too often think of church with a consumer mindset. We consume and seek what benefits us or our families. Is the teaching to my liking? Does the student ministry provide for the needs of my kids? Do I like the musical style? Am I getting what I want out of the classes I take on Sunday morning? The list could go on and on. Now, some of these questions are important. Of course, you shouldn't go to a church that's not teaching the gospel, that is teaching heresy. You shouldn't go to a church like that. And we should benefit from the church. But if that's all we're thinking about, if we're thinking with a consumer mindset, we have missed the point. We are citizens of God's kingdom, called to participate in the kingdom and the mission of the church. Are you listening to Jesus's words, obeying them, and then being propelled out into mission here at EP Church and in Annapolis? Just like Indiana and Donovan had to choose which cup to drink, a choice that could lead, that would lead to either death or life, each one of us needs to choose death or life by trusting in Jesus or rejecting him. On the one hand, this is a one-time choice. You believe in Jesus and you're saved. Have you placed your trace and faith in Jesus is the question. But on the other hand, this is an every minute, every day choice. Are we hearing and obeying Jesus's words daily, not just on Sunday morning, not just at our Renew group, not just when we're with our Christian friends and acquaintances. Here at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenges us daily, hourly to obey him, to hear his words and do them, to follow our Savior, to make him the foundation of our life in every moment. And we are able to do that because Jesus has given his spirit to dwell inside of us. Now, not only is Jesus the foundation, but he is also the builder, the one who has built a house in heaven where he says to his disciples, I have prepared many rooms for you. And there's other places where Jesus speaks about how he is building us new bodies. We are new creations. We have an eternal hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only sure and steady rock. So let us cling to him for salvation and life. And when the storms of life come, when difficulties assail us, we can remain steadfast and our lives will not crumble because our hope is not in ourselves or anything this world, but in Jesus. And the Lord's Supper should remind us of God's salvation, should remind us of why we can place our hope in Jesus, the steady rock, because he did have his body broken for us. He did shed his blood for us when he didn't have to. When he had no sin to pay for, he died to pay for our sins. During his earthly ministry, Christ instructed his followers to practice the Lord's Supper by eating the bread and drinking the cup in remembrance of him and his death until he returned. Christ is present in this meal, strengthening and encouraging each one of us as we remember what he has done for us, what we have believed and placed our faith in. The Lord's Supper is a family meal for those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and become an adopted daughter and son of God. If you're here this morning and you don't 
have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to not take this meal. I wouldn't want you to do something that's not genuinely true of you. We're so happy that you're here. We're so happy that you can observe and learn. And if you have any questions about what this is, please come and talk to us. This time I invite the elders who are going to help me serve to come forward. And then we're going to spend some time in prayer. Typically, as part of our service, we confess and repent of our sins before the Lord because it's important that we do that corporately together and trust in the hope and assurance of the gospel. We're going to pray right now and take a moment of silence for you to individually confess your sins to the Lord. It's important that as we take the Lord's Supper that we reflect on what we have done and what Christ has done for us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you this morning reflecting and knowing that our sin is great. We have not loved you with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, there are times where we have hated you. There are times where we have hated other people beautifully created in your image. There's times when we have hated ourselves. We confess, Lord God, our sins. They are great. They are many. They are deeper and wider than we understand. Right now, we reflect personally, Lord God. We confess to you. But Lord God, you're love and mercy and grace is greater. Our sin is deep and wide, but your mercy, grace, and love is greater, wider, deeper. We thank you that our sins have been placed on Jesus Christ. He died for us. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And by trusting in him, we are forgiven and saved. Thank you. We pray, Lord God, that as we come and take these elements, we will be reminded and strengthened by them and by what you've done for us. Please be present here as we partake. In Jesus' name, amen.